If you have a Bible, we're going to stay in Matthew 5, really right where we left off last week. We pick up a continued conversation that Jesus is in the midst of with his disciples, where if you'll recall, he pulls them aside from the crowds and he begins to teach them in private the nature of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a part of his kingdom? And what we see today really is him speaking to the, the role that he gives to these disciples and by extension to the church and therefore to us. What does it mean to be a part of the church and to participate? participate in and live out the mission of God. And as Jesus so often does, he uses very simple, very everyday commonplace examples to teach about these seismic cosmic realities. And so our reading today, he talks about salt that you add to your food, and he talks about lighting a lamp and those being very significant and profound images for the kingdom of God and the work of his kingdom especially in this epiphany season, as we've continued with these themes of light and darkness. You can see why this reading makes a lot of sense. And we'll begin, though, with salt. Let's start with salt. I've thought a lot about salt this week, preparing for this. And if you've grown up in the church, if you've been around Christian uh, teaching or scripture really at all, you're probably very familiar with this reading. Salt of the earth, light of the world, those are phrases that are fairly common to us. And and whenever that's the case, there's a temptation to, to miss the heart of what Jesus is actually wanting us to see. We can uh, we can hear this and kind of just let it come in one ear and out the other because we're familiar with it. But I think there's something quite profound for us if we have ears to hear it. First thing I think of when I think of salt is that salt gives flavor, right? It was true then, it's true now. Salt gives flavor and it's a really powerful ingredient. If you add too much salt, it can ruin a whole dish. And if you don't have enough salt, uh, it also can ruin a dish in the sense that it's quite bland, that it's dull. Uh, and so salt is an incredible thing. I've learned this from my wife. Uh, my wife is a, a truly gifted baker and, and cook and uh, loves to explore new food. And, and so uh, my contribution is I help to eat it. And uh, we watch uh, cooking shows as a result. Have you seen the one on Netflix, The Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat? It's a really interesting show, a similar book as well. And the woman that, that teaches in it has a whole episode on salt. And so I've learned a lot about salt through her and through then us kind of cooking through some of her recipes. And so, for example, she has a recipe in that show and in her book uh, for a roasted buttermilk chicken. That's the best thing I've ever had. And the, the secret, she says, to this chicken, like the way chicken will blow your mind, is salt. And you just put an insane, obscene amount of salt into this roasted chicken. And it's pure magic. On the other hand, too much salt can ruin your food, absolutely ruin your dinner, right? Uh, this is the time of year when often we eat soup in our home. We'll make soups. It seems seasonally appropriate to do so. And there's literally nothing worse on the planet when it comes to food, at least, when it comes to over-salted soups. Like a, a really salty soup is just absolutely disgusting. You can't eat it at all. And so what we often do is we undersalt the soups that we make, and then you can add your salt in to taste. And I'm always amazed when I'll first taste the soup, how how comparatively simple or bland it may be. And you add just a dash of salt, and it changes the whole dish, absolutely transforms the soup. So Here's what's interesting. This is not unique to my home. We as Americans love salt. I read this this week. 90% of Americans, 90% of Americans consume 50% more salt than the recommended maximum amount. 90%. So all of you are guilty, except for like a few of you. So we all do this. We eat too much salt. And, and it's not because we add a dash too much to our soup in the winter months. No, it's because of pre-packaged 
highly preserved foods. It's everything in the grocery store that's in the middle of the store where we all buy our food. There's a reason that those uh, foods could stay on those shelves for years and you come back to the same store and they're still edible. That is not normal. That is the power of salt. Salt can preserve things for years. And what's interesting when I think of this, even in the ancient world, they would have no idea, no like category for the Keebler elves, right? However, they would have understood the potent power of salt as a preservative, not just as flavor, but as a preservative. And here's, I think, what Jesus is getting at. He's speaking to flavor, but he's also, I think, principally speaking to preservation as well. And one of the things he wants the church to see, wants the apostles to see, is that they are meant as the church to be a preserving reality in a world that's prone to decay. A preserving reality in a world that's prone to go bad. And the church somehow, like even a dash of salt, the church is able to be a preserving force. And hear me when I say this. We have seen over the centuries, even over the decades, we have seen ways in which Christians have taken that idea and run with it in really unhelpful ways. And we think the way that we're a preserving reality is by force and by gaining political influence. And yet... Even when we see examples where that's not necessarily the best way to go about doing this, it doesn't negate Jesus' words. And we have to take them seriously. We have to take seriously that Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, church. And in some way, we are meant to be a preservative, preserving what is good and true and actually seeing it uh, spread as well. This is one of our primary roles as the church. If you're following along, look at verse 13. Really interesting verse. Fascinating because our English translation fails us in this regard because we don't actually see what's going on here. Because verse 13 is an explicit wordplay. Jesus is playing on commonly known words. So when it says salt has lost its taste, the Hebrew word for lacking flavor, lost its taste, sounds to the ear almost identical as the word for folly which is really interesting, right? Foolishness and to lose flavor, lose taste are almost the exact same word. So much so I read one Bible translation this week that says if salt becomes foolish, which kind of goes above and beyond to make this point. But hear what I'm saying. So point being, if salt loses its flavor, it is no longer doing the primary thing that salt is meant to do. Similarly, if we as disciples of Jesus, if we give ourselves to folly, if we become foolish people, we are no longer doing and being the very people we are meant to be doing the things that we are meant to do, which is why I think in the middle of talking about salt and light, Jesus interjects this whole conversation about the law. And we'll finish with that. We'll come to that at the end. But I think that's one way to understand why all of a sudden he starts talking about the law, because the law rightly understood helps us understand what it means to be the people we're meant to be, how we are meant to live. And it guided the people of Israel for centuries in that way. But before we turn to that, let's talk just for a minute about light. If salt adds flavor and is a preservative, light, I think, obviously adds illumination. Illumination. And Jesus talks about being a city set on a hill, but also has these very simple images, this idea of of lighting a lamp, very domestic, very homely. And I thought of that this week. It's taken me a while to acknowledge this, to even confess this, but I, I have become a morning person. 
truly unapologetically a morning person, which means I'm getting old. <laughs> because my dad was the person who always got up early. You know, for most of my life, it was like 1, 2 a.m., stay up as late as you can, sleep in as long as you can, and then you kind of get through the day as best you can. My dad was the one getting up at the crack of dawn, and I thought, you are insane. You know, you're missing out on the good life. And yet now I'm becoming my father because Every year, it seems, I get up just a little bit earlier. I stay up a little less. You know, nine o'clock hits, and I'm just worthless. Um, and maybe because I have little kids, it's also just temperament. Who, who knows? That All that to say, I, I find not only do I get up by, by necessity, I increasingly love the mornings and want to get up early, which is a very new feeling for me. But I want, I want to get up earlier and earlier because I think it's hard, almost impossible in my life to find unhurried space to find not only quiet, but quiet, unhurried space. And I find the earlier I get up, the less hurried I have to be. And so I can take 20 minutes to make a cup of tea. That should take five minutes. I can slowly get into my morning and and just be present in ways that throughout the day, we're always going, 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 and it's much harder to do. And so one of the ways I've, I've taken to this is just having a very structured but unrushed morning rhythm, especially life with the Lord. And one of the things I've done recently in the last year or so is build into our home a dedicated place to pray and be with the Lord, a, a prayer corner of sorts. And it has all sorts of things that I really love that you'd probably think are ridiculous and, uh, you know, prayer books and icons and incense and, and Bibles, you know, all, like I just stuff it all in the one corner and just kind of go there. And it's like become my favorite place in my house. Absolutely love it. And, and I pray for you. I pray for this church. I pray for my family. It's this place in which I think I'm living into the core vocation of what it means to be a pastor. What I'm doing right now is a part of it, but I think even more central is to be with the Lord Jesus and have you as the people and our community on my heart. Uh, not in some grandiose sense, but just to say that's part of what it means to lead and be a pastor is to be with the Lord. If the people in your life who are inviting you to spend time and to follow Jesus are not also with him, you shouldn't listen to them at all. And so that's what I try and do in the mornings. And a, a long story for a short illustration. One of the things that's there is candles. I love praying with candles because in the morning, Something about the overhead lights, kind of like in here, if we turned all these fluorescents on, uh, they would just be miserable. Something about the overhead, something even about a lamp that just feels harsh. It feels like it breaks into what's otherwise a very still and quiet space. And so I like candles. And what's amazing is is when the room is dark enough, which it usually is if I'm up early enough, it's pitch black. I can light a single candle and I can it lights up the whole room. I can read the scriptures, I can read the prayers, I can see my, my entire home from a single candle because the light is so dark. And I think that's something for us to sit with, the significance of a single candle when there is such very real darkness, a single candle can be a source of remarkable light. I think of that in our own baptism service. It made me think of it this week as I thought of, of my own prayer life. When we, when we baptize people here on the north side, every time we baptize someone, whether they're a newborn or whether they're a, an adult man or woman, we give them a candle. We've only had a handful of baptism services, so I say that like this is an ancient practice. It is for the church, and we've kind of just recently adopted it. We give them a candle, which I think is very significant. So this person who's just come through the waters of baptism with the community surrounding them is handed a candle that has been lit from the Paschal candle, which is the Easter candle, this sign of the hope of resurrection. We hand them a candle symbolically, and we say to them in the service, I say, receive the light of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, 
I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then one of my favorite parts of the whole service, we'll have baptisms in just a few months. And so we'll be able to do this as a community. I don't know how we will yet do this in this actual space. We'll figure this out. Uh, But however we figure this out, we will together say, almost as a charge, a reminder to this newly baptized who they are meant to be and become. I say, live as a disciple of Christ, fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith. And then all of you with one voice say, confess Christ crucified proclaim his resurrection, look for his coming in glory. And then I close and I say, may almighty God deliver you from the powers of darkness, restore in you the image of his glory and lead you in the light and obedience of Christ. And then everyone says, amen. It's this beautiful, really the power of liturgy to call into being what we all long for, but sometimes don't have the words to say, which is that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what every one of us is meant to, to be and embody. That kind of light that is a lit candle that shines in the darkness and brings light. That is who we're meant to be. And I'll say this, it takes courage because you don't need me to tell you that the world is dark. We talked about this last week. There's brokenness everywhere we look. And so if you light a light, that's a vulnerable thing to do. You're exposed in one sense. Those who see the light are either drawn to it and want to be uh, be a part of that or prefer the darkness, as C.S. Lewis said. Those who prefer the darkness and choose the darkness. But it's a courageous, vulnerable thing that's required of us. And I say that not just in this activistic sense, like therefore you all need to go and find a bunch of things to do and therefore you are are somehow being a light in the world. That's not wrong. But even more foundational to it is that you and I need to tend to who we are becoming, who we are in our actual life with God. I think of the Desert Fathers, these people who went into the desert to live as devout of a Christian life as they could live. They followed all the law, kept all the commandments, did everything they're meant to do. And yet you then still read these accounts where the leaders of this community, they would say to the members, they would say, it is still left to you to become all flame, to become fully engulfed with the life of God. And that's what it means ultimately, I think, to be a Christian. St. Seraphim said, uh, those who acquire peace, those who acquire a peaceful spirit will save thousands around them. Acquire peace and a thousand will be saved. Really beautiful sentiment. This idea that that's fundamentally what it means to be salt and light, to be a person of peace, a person who is filled with the life of God. And yet I bring that quote up for another reason too, just to call out the challenge in this, because I think as as Americans, uh, as modern Western people, there's a part of that quote that could feed something dark in us, which is we really like the idea of being responsible for thousands of people doing anything, <laughs> let alone being saved. Like that's a great idea. And so it, it feeds this, this kind of uh, triumphant sense in us, this sense in which we want to be somebody. Yes, I want to, I want to follow the Lord and I want to be filled with his life, but also I want to be remembered. I want to be known. And I think that's where this, this temptation in these verses comes in because anytime I've ever heard this taught or set with this growing up in the church, you know, you're the, the, the light of the world, the salt of the earth, you know, these ideas, it always has this cosmic sense. Like we're going to go and say, of Africa for Jesus because I'm the salt of the earth. Like me, Trip Prince, I am the salt of the earth. God finally was ready to go global, and so here I am. You know, like that's kind of how we like, we never would say that, but we live this way sometimes. Even generationally, I think it feeds something in us. Feeds this idea. When I grew up in the church, like the worst thing you could ever do is be normal. <laughs> 
the worst thing you could ever do, like the thought of being a corporate accountant like someone's dad is like, I might as well die. <laughs> you know, why even, why even live? Why even bother? Because uh, we want to be special. We want to be something significant. And I don't, I don't see that waning. Like in the era of Instagram influencers, that is alive and well. The idea of being normal or ordinary is the worst possible scenario for our lives. And so we long to be significant and unique. And we, we, we miss the fact that Jesus isn't just saying to you individually. He's saying to the church, the collective we, as you go, where you find yourself living as light and living as salt, then together we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world which means you and I have a mission right where we are. And yes, he calls some of us to uh, the Congo, but he also calls some of us to coming or to Shambly or to Buckhead. He even calls people to Buckhead. Can you believe it? Uh, this is part of what it means to be, Chris says no, Chris can't believe it. <laughs> this is part of what we have to realize in this verse, not in any way to minimize the very particular calls on some people's lives to do wonderful things, maybe even global things for the sake of Christ. That is to be celebrated. And yet for so many of us, it's right where we are right here, right now. And yet we live always waiting for the next thing, thinking I'll finally find God when I'm over there. When I'm over there is when I will live on mission and live intentionally. And yet in so doing, we miss what he's doing right here, right now. And one of the most holy things maybe you could do to use that word is simply to stick around and to stay put and to push against that feeling of restlessness when it comes, because we all feel it. Maybe it's boredom, maybe it's dissatisfaction at work, but when you feel restless, it extends in all sorts of ways. You feel restless in your job, you feel restless in your city, you feel restless in your relationships, and so we look for change. And so often that desire for change in and of itself leads us to places we never want to go. It makes us into people we would never want to be. I'll give you a quote. One of my favorite quotes on this topic. I think we have it on the screen. It's from Thomas Akempis, at least attributed to Thomas Akempis, who wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ in the 1400s. Uh, for centuries, literally, was one of the most widely read books in the world. For several centuries, second only to the Bible. And what it is, is this, it's this book of wisdom, really taking the wisdom from the monastic world and applying it to everyday normal life. And he has something here that I, I find so helpful along these lines, this idea of, of embracing the challenge and yet the beautiful challenge of living an ordinary, rooted life. He says this, It is an excellent thing to live under obedience to a superior and to not be one's own master. It is much safer to obey than to rule. Many live under obedience more of necessity than of love. And such people are often discontented and complaining. What he's getting at there, I think, is this idea that uh, life forces a certain degree of, of subordination on us through work or, you know, what, whatever it may be. And yet to actively choose it as a will of love to see the good of being accountable and, and humbled within a community. There's something profoundly beautiful about that. He says this, uh, they will never attain freedom of mind unless they submit with their whole heart for the love of God. And then he tells them, go where you please, but nowhere will you find rest except in humble obedience under the rule of a superior. Preference for other places and a desire for change have unsettled many. 
I know most of us don't think of our lives as monastic, where you live under a, a superior and under a rule. And yet, as Americans, we certainly view our lives as fully free, autonomous beings who have no accountability or mutual submission to anyone. And so there is something, I think, to be gained, maybe a corrective in those words, to say there is something beautiful about submitting your life story and even some of the trajectory of your life to others that you trust and respect and say, could you speak into my life and tell me, am I wandering just because I'm restless? And do I need to be rooted? And I need someone to to root me and help me stick around because otherwise I'm not going to. Otherwise I'm going to flee when it gets hard and flee when it gets uncomfortable and when I feel exposed and go where I'm not known as well. And therefore I can hide a little bit easier and a little bit better. The longer you stick around here, this new community we're a part of, the harder it will be to be anonymous. And yet there's a very real gift in that because it might mean you're actually sticking around long enough to be known. And then you can learn what it means in the humble, ordinary, everyday stuff of your life to live like a light in the world. In your world, as it is right now, not the world you imagine it to be, but your actual life you're living. To actually be a preserving, flavoring reality to the relationships and the places that you live and that you work and that you call home. I think that's part of what we are invited into right here, right now. Let's shift gears just slightly. I want to close last couple minutes and just talk briefly about the law because it was a big part of what we read. Jesus talking about being the fulfillment of the law and how in the world does this fit in? Uh, remember, Matthew's gospel is written to a Jewish audience more than any of the others. Matthew's gospel is written specifically with the Pharisee in mind, the opposition that Jesus and his followers would have faced from the Pharisees who saw Jesus as a Sabbath breaker. They said, Jesus is a renegade leader who's upending everything we love and cherish and have received from the Lord. The commandments and the way to live as the people of God is directly given from God. And here comes Jesus claiming that he has authority above it and that fulfills it somehow. And so they're very, very concerned about Jesus. And so Matthew's written largely with that in mind. And so to talk about salt and light also, I think by necessity, brings in mindfulness of his immediate context and speaks to this idea of the law and how Jesus fulfills the law. It's really important for us to hear that because so often in the church or in kind of broader Christian circles, you hear this kind of idea that the Old Testament's bad and the New Testament is good. You know, God's really mean in the Old Testament and just like hates people and kills people and it just, you know, smites them everywhere. And then like Jesus comes along and everything's good. Uh, the only problem with that is that good Jesus never says that about the bad Old Testament. Not once. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. So what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that he has not come to abolish it, but come to fulfill it? Look what he says in verse 18. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's interesting. We miss what that is actually saying because it doesn't actually say letter. It says iota, which is the smallest letter in the Greek language. So not one iota, not one stroke of a letter, which is a way in which in Hebrew you would differentiate one letter from another. He's saying the smallest even in bit of our language. None of it will pass away. All of it has a purpose. All of it is pointing in a specific direction and has a means that ultimately points to Jesus and a fulfillment in him. Here's how one scholar put it. This may help when you think about this. He, he says, imagine a people who set out to find a new land. Let's assume it's an uninhabited land that doesn't lead to mass genocide. 
so they, they set out to find a land, a uh, beautiful journey of a, of a new, you know, new people. Uh, they cross the sea in these oceans, in these, in these ships, cross the oceans. Uh, they arrive at land and their story is now uh, taken up as the people who live on the land. And yet they will forever be a people who define themselves as the people who cross the sea. That those ships and that season at, at sea was a definitive part of their reality, but they did not exist to be people who lived on boats. They lived to be people who find and discover and live in a new country, a new kingdom. And in some ways, this, this scholar says that's a bit what it's like from the old to the new, that, that we are meant to be people who live on land, that we find the fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And yet the law, the Old Testament, brings us to that point, to see the fulfillment in Jesus. And yet it's easy, and, and maybe this is the challenge that Matthew gives to the Pharisees. It's like you've crossed the ocean, and yet you're sitting in the boat. You're mopping, and you're polishing, and you're, you're, you're sweeping, tending to the boats, and totally ignoring the fact that you're at land. And you never get off the boat, because you're just stuck there thinking the boat is the thing. And they're saying the boat's not the thing. The law is not the thing. It's Jesus. It's his kingdom. That's what it's meant to point us to. And I think we have to see that as well, to see all of this conversation about law, uh, because I think we can go in two different uh, opposite errors here. On the one hand, we can cling to the law, like those people in the boats. And we can say, well, I just like rules. It's predictable, and it's safe, and it roots me, and so I'm just going to do what it says and not worry about that whole becoming flame business. Like, that's for the mystics. That's for the charismatics. I don't do that stuff. I just, you know, give me me a new law, and and that's what I'll do. On the other hand, and I think this is more of a temptation for us, America, we're the land of the free. We're the people who love our liberty, and we assume freedom is found when we are cut loose from all restraint. I love that we prayed that prayer that Sindhu prayed today, the collect that our church prays around the world, this idea that the Lord invites us into freedom, that he gives us liberty. But liberty is not the same thing as, as full autonomy. We're still bound to one another and we're rooted and bound to the Lord. And we see the way in which the law was meant to point us to Jesus. Speaking of the Old Testament, I'll close with this from Second Chronicles. Here's where you see the people of Israel of old wrestling with this tension, this, this longing to follow God, but also uh, wondering where God is in the midst of it. Second Chronicles 15 says, For a long time Israel was without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without the law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. Just this beautiful reminder that when, the Lord wants to be found. Like God doesn't hide from us, and when we get closer, move away to keep hiding. He wants to be found. But we have to turn to him. We have to say, what does it mean to walk in your ways, to live by your will and to pursue you intentionally and deliberately? Because this takes deliberation. This takes a real intentionality in our lives. We often talk about following a rule of life. We're going to get more into that in Lent. Lent's in just a few weeks. And you'll have an invitation to say, what is my rule of life? There's a difference in a rule of life and rules in the sense of if I can just spell out the 34 rules that I need to live by. If I do all those, then I'm living a good life. No, a rule of life, rule in that sense comes from the same word where we get the word regular. It's more of a habit of life, a pattern of life. What are the daily and weekly and seasonal rhythms of life that I actually intentionally carve out and live into because I think they're for my good? It's much easier to let life just kind of come at us. And we all have a rule, but usually it's haphazard. Usually it's, it's whatever's most urgent, whatever's the loudest gets the most attention. 
What would it be instead to as the people say, how do we actually live as the people of God? How do we root ourselves in that unhurried, unforced rhythm of grace, rhythm of life with God, where we know we're rooted in his kingdom, that even very simple, humble things that maybe feel ordinary, maybe feel incredibly mundane, are actually the very place that we find him. It's not over there, but it's right here in those places, in these simple ways, faithfully day in and day out, like Mother Teresa said, to do little things and to do them with great love. I think that's part of the call on us as a church. That's all I have to say. Normally what we do is we go straight into the creed. And yes, I was sitting with this as I was was talking to Sindhu this week. I thought it'd it'd be nice to just have a moment to pray. I feel like there's a lot here of potential invitation from the Lord even into our own, our own lives, our own rhythms. Like, where do you feel restless? Where do you push against your rhythms of life that maybe feel uh, anything but holy, anything but the place where God's showing up and at work? And so I asked her just to take a couple minutes and, and create some space for us to do that. And there's a song she and I both love that I said, um, do you want to sing this for us? And, and, and um, twisted her arm and she, she said yes. Um, so uh, she's going to lead us in a, in a song. I think we'll have the words on the screen. Take, the, take it more as a, a prayer prompt, a way to reflect on, on these words for just a couple of minutes. Uh, ask where the Lord's inviting you, inviting us as a community to be salt and to be light. And then we will continue as usual with our creed and with our prayers. Uh, but first, let's take a moment and in the quiet of your hearts, go before the Lord. Thank you so much for listening to today's sermon. My name is Trip Prince, and I'm the parish pastor here at Trinity on the north side. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people growing into Christ's likeness. You can learn more about Trinity and get plugged into the life of the church by visiting us online at atltrinity.org. God bless you and have a great week.